Welcome to Keep the Faith Ministry. Keep the Faith brings you timely messages with in-depth spiritual analysis of current events in light of Bible prophecy so you can prepare for the coming of Jesus. Listen to what the news won't tell you. Here is another important message for our times. This is Pastor Hal Mayer. Dear friends, thank you for joining me today as we look at the growing dangers to religious liberty in our world. The world is awash in aggressive anti-Christian rhetoric and behavior. Many of us stand aghast at the bloody assaults against Christians beheaded just because they're Christian, or the church bombings in the Middle East. But there are also religious liberty issues developing in America, Europe, Russia, and other places as well. But before I begin, let me thank those of you who have supported our work with your gifts. It means a lot to us, and we greatly appreciate your prayers as well. Your support makes it possible for Keep the Faith to send out our CDs and provide you with daily prophetic intelligence briefings, and it is truly helping people understand our times and get their lives ready for the coming of Jesus. Let me also remind you that we have the DVD series available called Prophetic Secrets of the New World Order. It's a good way to familiarize yourself and your friends and family with the great and compelling prophetic issues we face today. Order it from our office by calling 540-672-3553 or email us through our website. Don't forget to share the pink card in your packet with someone else. Those who like prophecy will love what we do. Urge them to sign up and get the CD so that they can be kept abreast of major ongoing developments and also to sign up for the prophetic intelligence briefings by email, which are the less significant but nevertheless very prophetic developments. There's so much happening prophetically in our world that you need a source of relevant and current information on which to guide your life as we near the coming of our Lord. So let your friends know that they need it too. Just one word about our health retreats in Australia. Our new place in South Australia at Amaru Water Gardens is about to begin renovation work. If you have building skills and you're willing to spend a couple of weeks to a couple of months with us, please let us know. We need your help. If you live in the United States, New Zealand, and most anywhere in Europe or Scandinavia, you can easily come to Australia for a few weeks or months. Just contact us and we'll give you all the information you need. Carpenters, plumbers, electricians, and even gardeners and cooks are needed to help with preparations for Amaru Water Gardens to make a huge impact on the people in South Australia. Now let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we love you and we want you to return soon. But we realize that so many of our loved ones and even ourselves are not ready. As we chart the progress of prophetic events, please, Holy Father, Give us your presence through your Holy Spirit. We need your overcoming power in our lives, and we pray that Jesus will live in us so that we may be victorious over every temptation of the enemy. Thank you for your love and grace, your marvelous grace. Please show us today what we need to know about a major threat to religious liberty. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, let me begin my message today by opening the scriptures to a very familiar passage in Revelation 17. 
Let's have a look at verses 3 to 5. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her head was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. I want you to notice that the woman is riding on the beast. In other words, she's in control of the beast. A woman in Bible prophecy represents a church, and a beast represents a state. So in this case, the church is in control of the state. Bible prophecy is telling us that there is coming a time when this prophetic symbol, this great prophetic prophecy, will be fulfilled in the last days. Please notice that this is not a godly woman. This is a spiritual prostitute. And she is full of abominations, and her fornication has been filthy. If ever there was a religious system that meets this description, it is the Roman Catholic Church. And with all the scandals that have come to light in recent years, which took place over decades and even centuries, it should be obvious to everyone who these verses are talking about. Right down to the colors of the robes of the priests and the chalice of the mass, this account accurately describes those annals of history that expose the tyranny of Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. But for those who do not want to believe, they will not see it. It is especially designed so that only those whose spiritual eyes are open can see the connection. Rome was cut down by a deadly wound when Napoleon sent his general to Rome to arrest and exile the Pope. She lost her power with the rise of the United States of America, which enshrined religious liberty in its constitution, which Rome describes as a pestilential error. But that deadly wound was healed. See Revelation 13.3. And the entire world is going to be charmed by the beast again. Rome will ascend to the heights of power once again. Already the world seeks papal advice when there are troubles. And even the Pope offers to mediate between nations that dispute over various matters. For instance, as the crisis in Korea heated up, Pope Francis, who was giving a press conference aboard his flight from Egypt back to Rome, told the United States and North Korea to cool it. He said the United States and North Korea should de-escalate their nuclear tensions, saying their ongoing dispute over weapons testing has become too hot and suggesting they might ask a third country to intervene and act as a mediator. The Pope also warned U.S. President Donald Trump and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un that a nuclear war would destroy a big part of humanity. I call on them, as I have called on the leaders of various places, to work towards solving problems through the path of diplomacy, he said. There are many facilitators in the world, Francis continued, offering the country of Norway as an example. There are mentors that offer themselves. There are countries ready to help. Do you think the United States will ask Norway to med mediate the crisis? Do you think that the Pope really means that the United States should ask Norway? Where do you think these two nations would find the greatest help in their little crisis? I dare say that they would be more likely to find it with the Vatican. After all, the Pope has already established himself as the, in the global field as the great negotiator. Think who it was that facilitated the rapprochement between the United States and Cuba. It was the Pope. 
Think about the historic climate change agreement that could not be accomplished during climate summit after climate summit. That was Pope Francis. If Donald Trump thinks himself a great negotiator, he had better realize that he is a distant runner-up to the Pope. There's no comparison between the two men in that area, and if Norway or some other nation were involved, you can be sure that the papacy would be busy behind the scenes working to help them nevertheless. Francis singled out the United Nations, too, as needing to take more leadership in the situation, saying the abilities of the international organization had been watered down. I believe the UN has the duty to reassume leadership a bit, the Pope said. The Pope's remarks were made on April 29, only six days before the Vatican announcement that the President would meet the Pope on May 24. U.S. President Donald Trump is paralleling Pope Francis. His first overseas trip to Saudi Arabia, Israel, the EU, Sicily, and the Vatican was much as much about healing the rifts between nations just as the Pope has been attempting to do. Yes, there were arms deals, dinners, and diplomacy. But underneath it all was Mr. Trump's intention to reach out to the religious groups involved in those areas to stem the tide of terrorism, strengthen relationships on every front, including with the Vatican, and to negotiate peace between religions. This makes it more likely that the United States and the Vatican will collaborate more closely on key issues of peacemaking. But what does all this international global tension and posturing have to do with religious liberty? Look, the papacy is seeking stature and global authority. She already has quite a bit of it, but when she is given back her full authority because of her collaboration with the United States, as is revealed in Revelation 13, she will encourage the nations to establish Sunday laws, including Sunday worship laws. In essence, Rome is seeking influence over the nation-states of the world in key areas with the purpose to get those nations to endorse her Sunday worship claims. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew 22, and we'll begin reading with verse 15. Matthew 22, beginning with verse 15. Then went the Pharisees, and took counsel how they might entangle him in his talk. So what were they going to do to Jesus? They were trying to trick Christ into saying something that would either alienate the people from him, or give them an excuse to accuse him to the Romans. They were determined. So listen to what they did in verses 16 and 17. And they sent out unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. Tell us therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? If Jesus had said yes, that would give them an excuse to accuse him before the people of being opposed to divine law, and thus alienate them from him. After all, the Jews hated the Romans. These church leaders tried to play on the carnal attitudes of the people and use them against Christ. If Christ said no, then they would say to the Romans that Christ was fomenting insurrection, and that would surely get him in a lot of trouble. These church leaders were pitting loyalty to the church against loyalty to the state. In their minds, loyalty to the church was the equivalent of loyalty to God. Of course, this was also wrong. And when a church teaches things that are wrong, including blind loyalty, they are either in deep apostasy or in great danger of it. 
That's why the doctrines of Rome are described as the wine of Babylon. This is very important because many people think that if they're loyal to the church, they're being loyal to God. And I'm not just referring to the Roman Catholics. Let us continue to read the story from verses 18 to 21. But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he saith unto them, Whose is this image and superscription? They say unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. In other words, Jesus separated church and state by that statement. He used their trap not only to free himself, but to establish a principle that would not come to fruition for 1,700 years. He established the principle of religious liberty and placed loyalty to God above loyalty to the state or the church. How so, you might ask? Well, if, in fact, we have a duty to God and to Caesar, then one of them supersedes the other, because often there is conflict between the secular state and the instruction of the Bible. It is obvious that loyalty to the divine Creator, Redeemer, and Lord is higher than that of Caesar. So by saying that we are to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's, Jesus was really putting the issue where it needs to be. Loyalty to God must always be in place. But we can also support the state that protects and provides infrastructure for us to the extent that their demands do not conflict with the law of God. Jesus gave no advantage to either the Roman or the Jewish power. Jesus escaped their trap, but he also articulated a whole new concept, perhaps something we take for granted in our modern era, religious freedom. Notice that they left him, their Evil hearts made them so uncomfortable in the presence of his purity. They could not stay there in his presence. And why did Jesus call them hypocrites? Had they answered the claims of God and faithfully fulfilled their obligations to him, they would not have become a broken nation subject to a foreign power. No Roman ensign would have waved over Jerusalem. No Roman sentinel would have stood at her gates. No Roman governor ruled within her walls. The Jewish nation was then paying the penalty of its apostasy from God. That's from the Spirit of Prophecy, volume 3, page 43. So Christ represented the separation of church and state and the priorities associated with that. And today we have a legacy that provides for religious freedom embedded in many of our various constitutions. Yet this precious freedom is increasingly tenuous. The enemy does not like freedom, especially freedom of religion. Just look at how the Obama administration, for instance, assaulted religious liberty through the Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare. Also look at how the energetic push by President Obama himself and others to enshrine same-sex marriage in law and then assault those who exercise their First Amendment religious freedom in not serving gay weddings, for example. All of this is a very recent history. President Trump rode to the White House on the back of these twin issues by telling his supporters, who were angry at the Obama administration, that he would restore religious liberty and give the churches much more power. Of course, there were other things, such as illegal immigration, treaties that took away American jobs, etc., that he also spoke strongly to. Now the president is attempting to do something about these things. 
With that background, let us now look at President Trump's religious freedom agenda and his actions to determine the trajectory. We need to get the big picture here, and if you look merely at his executive order on religious liberty itself, there are some things that seem very good. For instance, the executive order carefully avoids any language that would look like the president is attempting to overthrow the Johnson Amendment. Why would that be? After all, he promised to overthrow the Johnson Amendment during his campaign for POTUS. Think about it for a minute. President Trump has had a difficult time with some of his key issues, as Democrats and other liberals have consistently targeted his initiatives with lawsuits, judgments, media rhetoric, and other opposition. Furthermore, the Johnson Amendment was a regulation that was added to the IRS code that prevents nonprofit religious organizations from meddling in any political campaign. To remove the Johnson Amendment would create some challenges that will have unintended consequences. While we don't know what he will do in the future, we can be thankful that the Johnson Amendment is still in place because it limits the ability of churches to directly advocate for one candidate or another. Repealing it would actually harm religious liberty in the long term, as you will see. When you think about it, America is in one of the most polarized times in its history, perhaps second only to the Civil War era. And the media cannot restrain itself and be objective. The liberal media is clearly and unabashedly biased against President Trump, anything he tries to do that's worth anything. They don't even keep a veneer of objectivity anymore. This just stokes the polarization and pushes Americans so far to the left and right that they cannot even talk intelligently to each other anymore. Gone are the days of reasoned political discourse. In this context, with political emotions at a fever pitch, with evangelicals salivating for more power, the repeal of the Johnson Amendment seemed almost a foregone conclusion given President Trump's campaign promises. But his executive order on religious freedom stops short of instructing the IRS not to enforce it anymore. While this was annoying to the religious right, it protects a key principle by affirming existing applicable law four times in the order. Here are the key points of the executive order. Section 1. Policy. It shall be the policy of the executive branch to vigorously enforce federal law's robust protections for religious freedom. The founders envisioned a nation in which religious voices and views were integral to the vibrant public square and in which religious people and institutions were free to practice their faith without fear of discrimination or retaliation by the federal government. For that reason, the United States Constitution enshrines and protects the fundamental right to religious liberty as Americans' first freedom. Federal law protects the freedom of Americans and their organizations to exercise religion and participate fully in civic life without undue interference by the federal government the executive branch will honor and enforce those protections. Section 2. Respecting Religious and Political Speech All executive departments and agencies shall, to the greatest extent practicable, and to the extent permitted by law, respect and protect the freedom of persons and organizations to engage in religious and political speech. In particular, the Secretary of the Treasury shall ensure, to the extent permitted by law, 
that the Department of the Treasury does not take any adverse action against any individual, house of worship, or other religious organization on the basis that such individual or organization speaks or has spoken about moral or political issues from a religious perspective, where speech of similar character has, consistent with law, not ordinarily been treated as participation or intervention in a political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to a candidate for public office by the Department of the Treasury. As used in this section, the term adverse action means the imposition of any tax or tax penalty or delay or denial of tax-exempt status, the disallowance of tax deductions for contributions made to entities exempted from taxation under Section 501c3 of the U.S. Tax Code, or any other action that makes unavailable or denies any tax deduction, exemption, credit, or benefit. And Section 3, Conscience Protections with Respect to Preventive Care Mandate. The Secretary of the Treasury, the Secretary of Labor, and the Secretary of Health and Human Services shall consider issuing amended regulations consistent with applicable law to address conscience-based objections to the preventive care mandate promulgated under the United States Code. The executive order mostly leaves the Johnson Amendment intact. In essence, the government can still challenge the tax-exempt status of organizations that engage in participation or intervention in a political campaign on behalf of or in opposition to a candidate for public office. However, in recent months, bills have been introduced in Congress that would go much farther than this. These legislative bills would repeal the Johnson Amendment and change the law to permit churches to engage in political campaigning while maintaining their tax-exempt status. The order protects the right of nonprofit religious organizations to speak to moral and political issues without fear of losing their tax-exempt status. They still cannot engage in direct campaigning on behalf of or against any given candidate for public office. President Trump signed the executive order with Roman Catholic, Evangelical, and Jewish leaders, among others, around him at the White House Rose Garden on the annual National Day of Prayer. Before the signing ceremony at the Rose Garden, Mr. Trump was scheduled to meet in the Oval Office with none other than Cardinal Daniel Nidardo, head of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and Cardinal Donald Wuerl, Archbishop of Washington, D.C., they were also at the signing ceremony, along with other Catholic leaders, including Joe Sella, head of the National Catholic Prayer Breakfast, and members of the Little Sisters of the Poor, the nuns who ran amok of the Obama administration over provisions in the Affordable Care Act. Mr. Trump offered remarks during the ceremony, thanking religious leaders for joining him in the Rose Garden. It is a beautiful thing to see these three faith leaders from three very different faith traditions come together and lift up our nation in prayer, Mr. Trump said. Not only are we a nation of faith, we are a nation of tolerance. Mr. Trump said his executive order was meant to defend the freedom of religion and speech in America. No American should be forced to choose between the dictates of the federal government and the tenets of their faith, he added. The president said that he was directing the Justice Department to develop new rules to ensure these religious protections are afforded to all Americans. 
noting dozens of lawsuits brought against the Obama administration by various religious entities. He specifically called out the attacks against the Little Sisters of the Poor, whom he described as incredible nuns who care for the sick, the elderly, and the forgotten. He invited members of the religious order to join him at the podium. I want you to know that your long ordeal will soon be over, he said. With this executive order, we are ending attacks on your religious liberty. While the executive order instructs the IRS not to investigate churches and other houses of worship that endorse candidates or engage in partisan politics, he included a very crucial phrase that makes it clear that he has not changed the law. The phrase is consistent with applicable law. This means that as long as the Johnson Amendment stands, churches cannot engage in direct endorsement of political candidates. But they have a lot of latitude, nevertheless. He also included the wording relating to political speech, where speech of similar character has, consistent with law, not ordinarily been treated as participation or intervention in a political campaign on behalf of, or in opposition to, a candidate for public office by the Department of the Treasury. In other words, so long as political speech by churches and other nonprofits does not directly interfere with a political campaign, their nonprofit status would not be challenged. We will not allow people of faith to be targeted, bullied, or silenced anymore. We will never, ever stand for religious discrimination, Mr. Trump said. This financial threat against the faith community is over. While the executive order will certainly be seen by some as a license to get more political, others were disappointed that it did not go as far as they had hoped. For instance, it does nothing to change the way the federal law relates to businesses run by Christians who have moral objections to serving same-sex weddings, something that has caused a lot of stress for some businesses. I'm grateful for the executive order's affirmation of the need to protect religious freedom. Much, much more is needed, especially from Congress, wrote Russell Moore, head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. We strongly encourage the president to see his campaign promise through to completion and to ensure that all Americans, no matter where they live or what their occupation is, enjoy the freedom to peacefully live and work consistent with their convictions without fear of government punishment, said Gregory Baylor, a lawyer for the Alliance Defending Freedom. Meanwhile, the night before the signing, President Trump dined with several high-profile evangelical leaders at the White House, including Robert Jeffress, Greg Laurie, Jerry Falwell Jr., Paula White, James Dobson, Mark Burns, Franklin Graham, and Eric Metaxas. If you don't know who these people are, write them down and look them up online, or listen to our message entitled Donald Trump's Dangerous Advisors. Think about who these people are. These are very powerful evangelical leaders who influence perhaps millions of people collectively. The problem is that they are now seeking for a place in the halls of power and influence. And to do so, they are willing to treat Mr. Trump as if he is a god. For instance, when the group was taken on an insider's tour of the second floor of the White House and shown the Lincoln bedroom, Greg Laurie, pastor of the Harvest Christian Fellowship of Riverside, California, said that the group was reduced to being like little children, which is terminology usually applied to encounters with God during worship. 
Jerry Falwell Jr. praised the executive order and said evangelicals have found their dream president. Robert Jeffress said the executive order ended the 60-year war on religious liberty, even though it did nothing to remove the Johnson Amendment. Nor does it secure religious liberty for Christian institutions in jeopardy of losing federal funds for upholding conservative positions on reproductive rights and marriage. While some evangelicals are disappointed that the executive order doesn't repeal the Johnson Amendment, the fact is the president doesn't have the authority to change IRS law. That resides with Congress. So he doesn't have the option to remove the Johnson Amendment directly. Plus, the executive order can be undone by a future president. An act of Congress would more effectively sustain the removal of the amendment. So I recommend that we pray that God will hold back these winds of change in Congress. But who are these evangelicals, and what do they believe? These are Christian leaders of megachurches and parachurch organizations that think it is a good idea for ministers to endorse political candidates from the pulpit. They want political power and money in order to further their agenda to make America a Christian nation. While that sounds good, it is ominous and has prophetic potential. Think about the implications of removing the Johnson Amendment. The Johnson Amendment was enacted by Congress in 1954 and is named after its sponsor, Lyndon B. Johnson, who later became vice president and then president when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The amendment is a prohibition on churches and other houses of worship to prevent tax-exempt organizations from publicly favoring or endorsing one candidate over another. This includes the strict prohibition on financing a candidate or organizing to campaign for him or her. President Trump said that the Johnson Amendment needed to be repealed so that the churches can regain their free speech. Well, that's not what the Johnson Amendment is really about. It's really about politicians receiving tax-deductible campaign financing from churches in return for giving churches unprecedented political power. It's about giving wealthy special interests the opportunity to have a tax-deductible receipt for their campaign donations. Moreover, it would mean that churches would be permitted to donate a significant amount of its members' offerings and tithes to fund the political candidate that the church board or the pastor decides to support. Would churches get more donations? Of course they would, because the gifts, which right now are not tax-deductible, uh, would then become exempt. And politicians would not be slack in uniting with churches to get this blessed campaign money while offering the churches more power, just as Donald Trump did during his campaign. Would donors, particularly big donors, be in a position to manipulate the message of the mega churches and pastors? You bet they would. And would such a move be unifying for the churches themselves? Or would it be divisive? How polemic could it become if pastors and congregations would argue over who will get their wad of cash? Would this make it awkward for churches to make the choice to endorse a slate of Democrats or Republicans while trying to maintain some semblance of unity? Discussions about political matters are already divisive without bringing them into the church sanctuary. In fact, since we are in the most politically polarized era in many, many years, this would simply bring those divisive matters into the inner workings of churches. Would politicians who want to benefit from the largest 
have sudden and superficial conversions to the faith or church that offers the most support? Here's another question to contemplate. Why do popular preachers and pastors want more power? It's because they lack power in their lives and in their preaching to address the sin problem in themselves and in their membership. Some of them can preach very emotional sermons and get their members very affected, but they aren't normally addressing the sin problem and on popular truths that would make their members wise unto salvation. In fact, they're usually justifying sin in the name of getting people to heaven. Listen to this very interesting statement found in the book The Great Controversy, page 584. No error accepted by the Christian world strikes more boldly against the authority of heaven. None is more directly opposed to the dictates of reason. None is more pernicious in its results than the modern doctrine so rapidly gaining ground that God's law is no longer binding upon them. So what's the most pernicious teaching among the churches today? It's the denial that the law of God, the Ten Commandments, is still binding. In fact, this doctrine actually undermines the stability and tranquility of society in general. Let me read on. Every nation has its laws which command respect and obedience. No government could exist without them. And can it be conceived that the creator of the heavens and the earth has no law to govern the, the beings he has made? Suppose that prominent ministers were publicly to teach that the statutes which govern their land and protect the rights of its citizens are not obligatory, that they restricted the liberties of the people and therefore ought not to be obeyed. How long would such men be tolerated in the pulpit? But is it a graver offense to disregard the laws of states and nations than to trample upon the divine precepts, which are the foundation of all government? That's quite a question, my friends. What would happen if ministers advocated such anarchy? Yet that is in fact what they're doing when they claim that God's law is no longer binding. Reading on. It would be far more consistent for nations to abolish their statutes and permit the people to do as they please than for the ruler of the universe to annul his law and leave the world without a standard to condemn the guilty or justify the obedient. Would we know the result of making void the law of God? The experiment has been tried. Terrible were the scenes enacted in France when atheism became the controlling power. It was then demonstrated to the world that to throw off the restraints which God has imposed is to accept the rule of the cruelest of tyrants. When the standard of righteousness is set aside, the way is open for the prince of evil to establish his power in the earth. In fact, we're told that the scenes in France are a prophetic type of the scenes that will take place at the end of time. Here's the statement from the book Education, page 228. At the same time, anarchy is seeking to sweep away all law, not only divine but human. The centralizing of wealth and power, the vast combinations for the enriching of the few at the expense of the many, the combinations of the poorer classes for the defense of their interests and claims, the spirit of unrest, of riot and bloodshed, the worldwide dissemination of the same teachings that led to the French Revolution are all tending to involve the whole world in a struggle similar to that which convulsed France. While men slept, the enemy sowed tares. And today, there's so much evil, wickedness, violence, and crime that one wonders how long God will let it continue. The chaos of the Trump administration is merely a sign of the times. Very few respect the office of POTUS, very few think there is even a chance 
of a return to moral rectitude. Yet pastors of Sunday churches want more political power. Do they really want it to benefit their churches, or will it increase their stature and their fortunes? What's the real reason? Let me continue reading from The Great Controversy, page 584 and 5. Wherever the divine precepts are rejected, sin ceases to appear sinful, or righteousness desirable. Those who refuse to submit to the government of God are wholly unfitted to govern themselves. Through their pernicious teachings, the spirit of insubordination is implanted in the hearts of children and youth who are naturally impatient of control, and a lawless, licentious state of society results. While scoffing at the credulity of those who obey the requirements of God, the multitudes eagerly accept the delusions of Satan. They give rein to the lust and practice the sins which have called down judgments upon the heathen. Those who teach the people to regard lightly the commandments of God sow disobedience to reap disobedience. Let the restraint imposed by the divine law be wholly cast aside, and human laws would soon be disregarded, because God forbids dishonest practices, coveting, lying, and defrauding, men are ready to trample upon his statutes as a hindrance to their worldly prosperity. But the results of banishing these precepts would be such as they do not anticipate. If the law were not binding, why should any fear to transgress? Property would no longer be safe. Men would obtain their neighbor's possessions by violence, and the strongest would become richest. Life itself would not be respected. The marriage vow would no longer stand as a sacred bulwark to protect the family. He who had the power would, if he desired, take his neighbor's wife by violence. The fifth commandment would be set aside with the fourth. Children would not shrink from taking the life of their parents if by so doing they could obtain the desire of their corrupt hearts. The civilized world would become a horde of robbers and assassins, and peace, rest, and happiness would be banished from the earth. End quote. So why do we have such lawlessness and wickedness in our world today? Ultimately, it's because the popular preachers teach that the law of God is no longer in force and that we are forgiven all of our sins, past, present, and future, and that there is no need to be concerned or alarmed about anything, including a few darling sins. Peace and safety is the keynote and mantra. We're all saved, and if you have once been saved... You never lose your salvation, no matter what sins you commit, no matter how evil your life, no matter whether you study your Bible or not. At least that's what they teach. Let me continue reading. Already the doctrine that men are released from obedience to God's requirements has weakened the force of moral obligation and opened the floodgates of iniquity upon the world. Lawlessness, dissipation, and corruption are sweeping in upon us like an overwhelming tide. In the family, Satan is at work. His banner waves, even in professedly Christian households. There is envy, evil surmising, hypocrisy, estrangement, emulation, strife, betrayal of sacred trusts, indulgence of lust. The whole system of religious principles and doctrines, which should form the foundation and framework of social life, seems to be a tottering mass, ready to fall to ruin. The vilest of criminals, when thrown into prison for their offenses, are often made the recipients of gifts and attentions as if they had attained an enviable distinction. Great publicity is given to their character and crimes. The press publishes the revolting details of vice, thus initiating others into the practice of fraud, robbery, and murder, and Satan exults 
in the success of his hellish schemes. The infatuation of vice, the wanton taking of life, the terrible increase of intemperance and iniquity of every order and decree should arouse all who fear God to inquire what can be done to stay the tide of evil. And this is where the pastors that advise President Trump have their anchor. They think that instead of preaching that the claims of God's Ten Commandment law is still in force, they are teaching by precept and example the exact opposite. And the resultant tide of evil has them salivating to get the nation back to God. They want political influence so that they can organize religious laws that will bring morality back to the nation's leadership and governance. Some of the morality imposed by such laws would be good, but eventually there will be religious laws that will only put God's people in a corner so they cannot move without compromising their faith. But first, there has to be some legal groundwork laid and perhaps some precedent in uniting church and state. The repeal of the Johnson Amendment would cross a prophetic line. It would create a set of circumstances in which the churches that have rejected the perpetual law of God and made it of none effect as from the Old Testament dispensation are now seeking to find ways to buttress their lack of power to change society through political means. Their campaigns need more money than ever, and they would come hat in hand to the church for direct financial support. Friends, this is wicked. The fact that Mr. Trump's executive order does not remove the Johnson Amendment is only because he doesn't have the power to do so. But as legislative bills wind their way through Congress to repeal the Johnson Amendment, we can still see that there is an effort to undo the safeguards against the mixing of church and state. This is serious, my friends. We need the Johnson Amendment in place so that the rise of church power over the state will not happen, at least at this time. The Bible predicts that it will come, but we are to pray that the angels hold back the winds of strife so that the people of God, who are very unready and caught up in their sins and wicked ways, will have time to yield their lives to Christ and be sealed in their foreheads. It's interesting to see what the National Council of Nonprofits has to say about the potential repeal of the Johnson Amendment. Tim Delaney, president and CEO of the council, released the following statement. Listen carefully to what he says about what would happen to nonprofits if the Johnson Amendment is repealed. The National Council of Nonprofits expressed strong opposition to the latest attempts to politicize charities and foundations, including legislation reintroduced into Congress that would alter long-standing federal law that protects charitable nonprofits and foundations and the donating public by preventing them from engaging in partisan election-related activities. What is being said here is that removing the Johnson Amendment would politicize churches, charities, and other nonprofits. Tim Delaney's statement actually says nonpartisanship is vital to the work of charitable nonprofits. It enables organizations to address community challenges and invites the problem solving skills of all residents without the distractions of party labels and the caustic partisanship that is bedeviling our country. Indeed, current law is the reason that charitable nonprofits are safe havens from politics, a place where people can come together to actually solve community problems rather than just posture and remain torn apart. 
For more than six decades, the law now being attacked has protected charitable nonprofits and foundations from being pressured by politicians and paid political operatives to divert their time and resources away from advancing their missions in local communities. That law has a proven track record of working well to protect against politicization. Nonprofits are already free to exercise their First Amendment rights to advocate for their missions, allowing political operatives to push for endorsements that would put nonprofits in a position where they become known as Democratic charities or Republican charities and put missions at risk. Furthermore, those who donate to nonprofits want those contributions to go toward advancing the mission, not toward advancing the careers of politicians or lining the pockets of political consultants. Getting involved in supporting or opposing candidates will have a chilling effect on contributions on which many nonprofits rely. Repealing the Johnson Amendment would provide churches with the ability to use tax-free donations to endorse political candidates. This, in turn, will greatly increase the power and influence of the church over the government. This is a huge temptation for churches. Perhaps it is a temptation too difficult to resist. And they will justify it by seemingly compelling religious interests. The new system and circumstances will not be equal. Some churches will gain much more power than other churches. Some will manipulate, dominate, and eventually control the government at all levels through the electorate and through the policy-making process. This is enormous power, my friends. And the centers of power that will arise from this set of circumstances, uniting church and state, will be the most powerful entities in America with the ability to pressure politicians to enforce their agendas. Remember the statement in the book, The Great Controversy, that says Romanism in the old world and apostate Protestantism in the new will pursue a similar course toward those who honor all the defined precepts? That's from page 615. It will be the evangelicals in the United States that will press for religious laws once they get the power. Rome will stand beside them, but will not be the prime mover, at least not on the surface. In fact, evangelicals will ask the Pope, the bishops, and priests for help to get their religious laws passed. Here it is from Spirit of Prophecy, volume 4, page 425. The Church appeals to the strong arm of civil power, and in this work, papists are solicited to come to the help of Protestants. Well, we aren't quite there yet. We're getting pretty close. Think about the electoral issue for a minute. Religious conservatives have felt marginalized, isolated, and essentially relegated to the trash heap of history in recent years, particularly in light of the aggressive liberal and leftist agendas that have been foisted on the nation. Even many conservative Republicans have gone along with it. And once churches get the ability to fund political campaigns, do you think they will let go of their newfound power? Consider this. The liberal left has generally had free reign, even getting them conservatives to support their cause. Most of the mainstream press is liberal and socialistic. Even when there is a Republican in power, they still go along in the same trajectory as the left. Repealing the Johnson Amendment will put the conservatives and their agenda right back front and center in the midst of American politics for a long time to come. And while the left is dangerous to certain things. The right is even more dangerous. And let me go so far as to say that when the Johnson Amendment is repealed, 
The politician who does not have a large megachurch to support him or her will be left out in the cold. I predict that if the Johnson Amendment is repealed, many a politician will somehow miraculously get saved. The religious leaders will talk about the great revival going on in America by the political parties. Even Barry Black, the chaplain of the Senate, is talking about a religious revival among politicians. During a congressional clergy town hall event for conservative pastors and members of Congress, he said he sees a revival coming and that it will commence in the halls of Congress. Popular revivals are too often carried by appeals to the imagination, by exciting the emotions, by gratifying the love for what is new and startling. Converts thus gained have little desire to listen to Bible truth, little interest in the testimony of prophets and apostles. Unless a religious service has something of a sensational character, it has no attractions for them. A message which appeals to unimpassioned reason awakens no response. The plain warnings of God's word, relating directly to their eternal interests, are unheeded. That's from Great Controversy, page 463. If a revival starts with politicians, they will not recognize the danger and will eventually fulfill the following statement. The dignitaries of church and state will unite to bribe, persuade, or compel all classes to honor the Sunday. Lack of divine authority will be supplied by oppressive enactments. Political corruption is destroying love of justice and regard for truth. And even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, will yield to the popular demand for a law enforcing Sunday observance. Liberty of conscience, which has cost so great a sacrifice, will no longer be respected. In the soon coming conflict, we shall see exemplified the prophet's words, The dragon was wroth with the woman, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God, and have the testimony of Jesus. Revelation 12:17. That's from Great Controversy also, page 592. For over 240 years, the United States has protected both the church and the state from the deadly medieval combination that persecuted the followers of Jesus and those who obeyed his law. Now an explosive change is openly and suddenly being considered that will advance the long-anticipated prophecies found in the scripture concerning the religious takeover of the secular state. In order for the United States to form an image of the beast, the religious power must so control the civil government that the authority of the state will also be employed by the church to accomplish her own ends. That's from the Great Controversy as well, page 443. Whenever the church has obtained secular power, she has employed it to punish dissent from her doctrines. Protestant churches that have followed in the steps of Rome by forming alliance with worldly powers have manifested a similar desire to restrict liberty of conscience. An example of this is given in the long-continued persecution of dissenters by the Church of England. During the 16th and 17th centuries, thousands of nonconformist ministers were forced to leave their churches, and many, both of pastors and people, were subjected to fine, imprisonment, torture, and martyrdom. That's also from the Great Controversy, page 443. Do you think this could happen in free America? of all places? Will churches try to get the state to persecute those that disagree with at least some of their doctrines? It is patently apparent that some churches would relish getting this kind of power. 
We need to pray, my friends, that God's work will not be hindered by the repeal of the Johnson Amendment. And though it appears that the United States is standing for liberty of conscience, the repeal of the Johnson Amendment is really the prelude to taking away liberty of conscience. This really matters, my friends. Here's another important point. Whereas up to the enactment of the Johnson Amendment, American churches were disunited and politically isolated. Now, however, both Protestants and Catholics are united on a host of issues. Now that the ecumenical movement has reached maturity, there is no doubt that the time is near when the churches will unite to control and manipulate the state. It is already happening to a certain extent. I should also point out that in 1954 the Constitution of the United States, and in particular the First Amendment, was highly revered and respected. The Supreme Court protected it, and it restrained political leaders from adventuresome tinkering with its precepts. There had not been the undermining of its core precepts that we have seen in more recent times since 9-11. Now, however, the Constitution has been virtually gutted by politicians, lawmakers, and judges, and is now a ghost of its former self, though not one word of it has been changed. There are some who want to push America to the point where religion has no influence on society and does not participate in the public space. They want to restrict the constitutional rights of religious people and institutions from exercising their right to live in the public arena without violating their conscience. On the other hand, there are religious people who want the government to solve the moral ills of the nation by funding their institutions. Neither of these are safe for the U.S. Constitution. Friends, because of Bible prophecy, we have a front row seat as we watch the nations of the earth become more and more prophetically engaged. We have the most light that God has ever entrusted to the world. We have a mission to warn the world of what is coming and to take measures to come into harmony with Christ. And while Donald Trump was fraternizing with the daughters of Babylon at the White House dinner the night before the signing of his executive order on religious liberty, and while he was meeting with those two cardinals in the White House before he signed the executive order, he was also planning to visit their mother and meet with Pope Francis on May 24. In his announcement of the forthcoming meeting, he said at the time that his first foreign trip, which will include Italy, will take him to a place that my cardinals love very much, Rome. That's a strange way to say it. My cardinals? It's as if he has been friends with them a long time. So long, in fact, that he now considers them his or at least his close friends. And as POTUS, does this mean he listens to them so much that he thinks that he has the same point of view as they? Keep in mind that Mr. Trump studied at Fordham University for two years, which is a Jesuit school in New York. He's no stranger to the Jesuits or the Vatican. Friends, how much longer do we really have on this earth? How much longer until the winds of strife are permitted to blow upon the nations? Friends, this is not the time to dabble in Christianity. It's time to submerge. Submerge in the Bible. Submerge in prayer. Submerge in Christ. You have to go all the way if you want to be saved. You can't just serve God some of the time or part of the way. You must submerge with your whole heart, with your whole mind, and with all your strength and with all your might. Here it is from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart and with all thy soul 
and with all thy might. Friends, let us pray. Dear Father in heaven, thank you for your promise that if we are in Christ, you will protect us from the general slaughter that will come upon the world. You promise that ten thousand shall fall at thy right hand, but it shall not come nigh thee. Please, Father, may we learn to love you with all our heart, soul, and might, that we may be partakers of these promises. May we earnestly live for Jesus today and every day. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which you promised to send us. Please, Father, may we live in the fullness of faith and righteousness. Through Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.
We hope that you've been greatly blessed by this month's message. Your prayers and gifts mean much to us. Thank you so much for your support. And if you've been impressed by this message and it has blessed your soul, please consider making a gift to help some other poor souls find their way to heaven through the CDs from Keep the Faith. The song you've just heard is called, O Lord Most Holy, sung by Jennifer Buttery. It is recorded on a CD with other beautiful hymns called Seekers of Your Heart. This lovely CD is available from Keep the Faith Ministry, and if you would like to have a copy of this CD or copies for your friends or family, just send $16 each postpaid to U.S. addresses to cover the cost, and we'll gladly send them. Please mention the Seekers of Your Heart CD. Our international listeners should send $20 USD. The following is our Prophetic Intelligence Briefing, a monthly feature that brings you current events in light of Bible prophecy, especially for those who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. We can see the signs of the times telling us that we are nearing the world's great crisis. May the Lord find us faithful. Our first item this month, electronic media searches at airports. Did you know that your cell phone can be confiscated at an airport by border protection and downloaded to their computers? That's right. To U.S. Customs and Border Protection, that means they can access whatever is on your phone. All your conversations, any app activity, Facebook, Twitter, anything you've ever said to anyone, etc. And they don't have to have a search warrant. U.S. Customs and Border Protection are searching the phones and other digital devices of international travelers at border checkpoints. While digital searches increased five-fold in the final year of the Obama administration, but still that is less than one-hundredth of one percent of all international arrivals. Watchdog groups have noticed an uptick in complaints about searches of digital devices by border agents. It has especially become noticeable under the new president, said Adam Schwartz a senior lawyer at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we are concerned that a bad practice that has existed under past presidents has gotten worse in quantity under the new president, Schwartz said. CBP, or Customs and Border Protection, has its own explanation, saying nothing has changed, but that isn't true. With all the information that can be stored in phones and other devices, CBP wants to mine it for their own reasons. Americans have protection under the Fourth Amendment from unreasonable search and seizure. A police officer, for example, must obtain a warrant from a judge before searching a suspect's phone. But the U.S. border is a legal gray zone, said Nathan Wessler, attorney at the ACLU. Border agents have long had the right to search travelers' physical luggage without a warrant, and that interpretation has been expanded to include digital devices. And that creates tremendous constitutional questions, said Wessler. In 2016, under the Obama administration, there were 23,877 electronic media searches. That comes to 0.0061% of total arrivals in the U.S. In fiscal year 2015, there were only 4,764 electronic media searches. While the CBP does uncover some crimes this way, a random system of searches is a form of privacy invasion and is not something most people expect. CBP agents are supposed to have a reasonable cause of suspicion. U.S. citizens can't be denied entry for refusing to comply with requests to supply a password for a phone. 
but they can detain them temporarily and take their phones for days. Travelers who are not U.S. citizens can be denied entry. Data searches at airports deepens the surveillance state that has gripped Western countries. It is a violation of the Constitution of the United States, which guarantees its citizens the right to privacy from unwarranted search and seizure. Every principle of the U.S. Constitution will be repudiated. See Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 451. Next, God wants Christians to rule over us. Pennsylvania Republican State Representative Rick Sacconi held a rally in Harrisburg recently where he announced that he intends to run for the U.S. Senate against Democratic Senator Bob Casey Jr. next year. Religious right historian David Barton and Sam Rohrer of the American Pastors Network joined Sacconi at his rally. Sacconi appeared on Rohrer's Stand in the Gap radio program where he explained that he is launching this bid for higher office because God wants Christians who will rule with the fear of God in them to rule over us. In the radio interview, Sacconi said that if Christians don't get involved in the government, the government will get involved in you and you won't like the results. The government will run over you and you won't have any say in it. So Christians have to stand up and make sure that they have a say in their government and that they're protecting their rights and our religious liberties, which are being trampled on every day across this nation. And if we don't speak out, those liberties will be taken away. You can see it day after day, case after case. God has set out a plan for us, Sacconi continued. If Christians don't rule, then the evil side will take over and the government will control and run over the good people. And so they have to stand up. That's just part of it. And if you don't have good people in government, then you'll have bad people in government. And when bad people are reigning over us, the people will not be happy. What can we expect if religious people rule over the nation who do not respect God's seventh-day Sabbath? This earth has almost reached the place where God will permit the destroyer to work His will upon it. The substitution of the laws of men for the law of God, the exaltation by merely human authority of Sunday in place of the Bible's Sabbath is the last act in the drama. When this substitution becomes universal, God will reveal Himself. He will arise in His majesty to shake terribly the earth, and He will come out of His place to punish the inhabitants of the world for their iniquity. And the earth shall disclose her blood, and shall no more cover His slain. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 7, page 141. Next, mass grave of children confirmed near former Catholic home for women. The remains of a significant number of children lie in a mass grave adjacent to a former Catholic home for unmarried mothers in Tuam County, Galway. The Bon Secours Sisters, a Catholic religious order, ran the home. The grave consists of an underground structure divided into 20 chambers where the remains lie. The home received unmarried pregnant women to give birth. The women were separated from their children who remained elsewhere in the home, raised by the nuns, until they could be adopted. But nearly 800 of them were never adopted, but died in the care of these nuns. The grave was found by the state-established commission of inquiry into mother and baby homes, precisely where it was predicted to be. The site appears to be related to the treatment, containment of sewage and or wastewater, but which we are not supposed to call a septic tank, said one observer. 
Analysis of selected remains reveals that the ages of these children were between 35 weeks and three years. The commission found that the dead had been mostly buried in the 1950s, when the home was one of more than a dozen in Ireland offering shelter to orphans, unmarried mothers, and their children. The Tuam home closed in 1961. The Archbishop of Tuam, Michael Neary, says he is deeply shocked and horrified. Is he really shocked? What could the church have known about the abuse of children in its institutions? When Irish Tawasich Enda Kenny was asked if he was similarly shocked, he answered, absolutely. To think you passed by the location on so many occasions over the years? Really? What would Kenny, in Irish politics since the 70s, know about state-funded, church-perpetrated abuse of women and children? Even the Commission of Inquiry, in its official statement, said that it was shocked by the discovery. With the discovery of 796 death certificates of children, with only two burial records, it was obvious that there were a lot of bodies somewhere. Local oral histories offered evidence of where those children's remains could be found. So why all the shock? Is it over the nuns in the mid-20th century Ireland that had so little regard for the life and death of little children in their care? The Ryan Report in 2009 documented the systematic sexual, physical, and emotional abuse of children in church-run, state-funded institutions. It revealed that when confronted with evidence of child abuse, the church would transfer abusers to other institutions where they could abuse other children. The Christian brothers legally blocked the report from naming its members. Meanwhile, Cardinal Sean Brady, now known to have participated in the cover-up of abuse by a pedophile priest, expressed how ashamed he was. The same year, the Murphy Report on the Sexual Abuse of Children in the Archdiocese of Dublin revealed that the Catholic Church's priorities in dealing with pedophilia were not child welfare, but rather secrecy, the avoidance of scandal, the protection of its reputation, and the preservation of church assets. In 2013, the McAleese Report documented the imprisonment of more than 10,000 women in church-run, state-funded laundries where they worked in punitive industrial conditions without pay for the crime of being unmarried mothers. The professional shock of Ireland's clergy, politicians, and official inquiring bodies seems rather, well, professional and not unsurprising either. We know too much about the Catholic Church's abuse of women and children to be shocked by Tuam. A mass grave full of the children of unmarried mothers is an embarrassing landmark when the state is still paying the church to run its schools and hospitals. Hundreds of dead babies are not an asset to those invested in the myth of an abortion-free Ireland. They inconveniently suggest that Catholic Ireland always had abortions, just very late-term ones, administered slowly by nuns after the children were already born. This is known as infanticide. As Ireland gears up for a strategically planned visit from the Pope, it may be time to stop acting as though the moral bankruptcy and hypocrisy of the Catholic Church are news to us. After the Ryan Report, the Murphy Report, the McAleese Report, Cloyne Report, the Ferns Report, the Rapho Report, and now Tuam, it is now impossible for the Church, government leaders, and inquiry organizations to pretend that they're shocked. For their own reasons, otherwise good, kind people in Ireland handed power over these helpless children and their unwed mothers to an institution they knew was abusive. 
and in Ireland's schools and hospitals, power is still being handed to the Catholic Church. Perhaps after Tuam, after everything else, that's what really is shocking. The sins of Babylon will be laid open. The Great Controversy, page 606. Next, the Royal Commission says that 4,444 children were abused by Catholic prelates. The Royal Commission investigating institutional response to child abuse in the Australian Catholic Church has released a report detailing the statistics of the systemic abuse of children by clergy, and the numbers are indeed shocking. 7% of Australian Catholic priests, up to 15% in some dioceses, were accused of abusing children in the six decades since 1950. Originally, the Catholic Church had represented these as isolated cases. Some Catholic orders were worse, and in the case of the Order of St. John of God Brothers, a staggering 40% of the religious brothers are believed to have abused children. 22% of Christian brothers and 20% of Marist brothers, two other orders, were alleged perpetrators. More than 20% of priests in the Benedictine community of New Norcia were also alleged perpetrators, while more than 17% of clergy were accused of crimes against children in the Salesians of Don Bosco order. Between 1980 and 2015, 4,444 people alleged incidents of child sexual abuse in total, relating to 93 Catholic Church authorities involving more than 1,000 institutions and 2,400 perpetrators. The average age of the church's victims was 10.5 for girls and 11.6 for boys, while most of them were boys. Requests to the Holy See and local Catholic authorities for documents involving Australian priests accused of abuse were consistently refused. The Commission wanted to understand what action the Church took in each case. The Holy See said it was neither possible nor appropriate to provide the information requested. Children were ignored or worse, punished. Allegations were not investigated. Priests and religious brothers were moved. The parishes or communities to which they were moved knew nothing of their past, said Gail Furness, senior counsel assisting the investigation. Documents were not kept or they were destroyed. Secrecy prevailed, as did cover-ups. The Church's Truth, Justice, and Healing Council, set up to coordinate the Church's response to the crisis, made an opening statement following the release of the data. Chief Executive Francis Sullivan said the data, without doubt, undermines the image and credibility of the priesthood. These numbers are shocking. They are tragic. They are indefensible, Sullivan said. And each entry in this data, for the most part, represents a child who suffered at the hands of someone who should have cared for and protected them. The data is an indictment on the priests and religious who abused these children. It also reflects on church leaders who at times failed to take steps to deal with the abusers, failed to call them to order, and failed to deal with them in accordance with the law. As Catholics, we hang our heads in shame, he said. Sullivan also outlined a number of programs designed to change the culture of the church. Why did the abuse happen at such a scale, and why was it covered up for so long? These questions and others will perhaps be answered eventually by the Royal Commission's final report. While the following verses of Scripture certainly apply to the spiritual and prophetic aspects of Roman Catholicism's Babylonian heritage, this level of spiritual apostasy inevitably carries with it literal corruption, 
abuse, and immorality played out in the real-world circumstances and organizations. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. Revelation 17, verses 4 and 5. Unfortunately, our time is up. Remember, there are more prophetic intelligence briefings on our website at ktfnews.com. It's been a great pleasure to spend this time with you. I hope you have been encouraged to live for Jesus, for we are near the end. Remember that God has a plan for your life and that right now you can make a new start with Jesus. Thank you for your prayers and support. And until next time, may God bless and keep you and your family in His loving and protecting care. Keep the faith.